Welcome to the audio podcast of the sermons from First Reformed Church in Edgerton, Minnesota. For more information on First Reformed, go to edgertonfrc.org or our Facebook page. We all know someone who has a voice that causes people to stop in their tracks. Whether it is the position that they hold or just the sound of their voice, we feel as though we should consider what this person person is telling us that we should do. Now, I'm guessing that most of us at some point in our past have had an educator who had a voice like that. And they were in this position of authority over us. I, I think back to the gentleman who was in charge of our little elementary school in Worthing, South Dakota when I was a kid. When he switched to a particular tone of voice, we knew that we needed to get in line. Now later on in my adulthood, I actually did substitute teaching uh, at the high school I graduated from, and through the course of my education, he eventually, this man eventually became a teacher at the high school, and then eventually the principal by the time that I was doing some substitute teaching while I was in seminary. And you know what? He still had that voice, and the kids still feared him right? That was just something that he had about him. We knew when we needed to get in line, and that doesn't go away. But as I mentioned, there's more to this than just the timber of someone's voice. There's also the authority that you have by being in a particular position, whether that's at school or someplace else. And there's also the way in which a person who has this trait carries themselves too, right? I'm also guessing that you will know what I'm saying, that this this type of authority doesn't necessarily go hand in hand with someone's stature. In all my years of education, I don't know that anyone carried more of an aura of authority than Laura Schmidt. And let me tell you, she was not a physically imposing figure. Uh, Maybe this tall, right? But when she spoke you knew that you were to do what Laura asked you to do. She meant business, and you knew it. She not only had the authority because she was our teacher, it was also something that she walked around with. You could just feel it about her. And everyone respected Laura. I recently went to her 100th birthday party, and she still has it. It's just something that you often have. Now, as we find ourselves returning to the Gospel of Luke this morning, and we pick back up in Luke 7, we're reminded of Jesus having authority. This has been something that Luke has been spelling out for us in the way that he's been telling the story of Jesus. And it continues in this passage that we've looked at today. And as we look at these 17 verses, we will be breaking these events down into three points to help us go on this path of interpretation and application that we're hoping to have today. And so the first point that we're going to be looking at will be that the Roman centurion comes to Jesus to ask to have his servant healed. Now this is a good place actually for us to jump back into Luke because it serves as an excellent reminder of what we've been seeing unfolding in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is growing in popularity among the people. We've seen that he started out teaching in the synagogues and then his Popularity overflowed into the entire region of Galilee. Jesus has not only been teaching, but he has shown that his 
Teaching has authority by backing up his words with miracles, such as the miraculous catch of fish, the healing of the paralytic, the healing of the man with the withered hand. And we get the idea that these aren't the only miracles that he's been doing along the way. Now, here we see that the word has gotten out to more than just the Hebrew people. A Roman centurion desires to have his servant healed. And so he sends his servants to ask Jesus to heal that servant. Secondly, we see that Jesus has authority over sickness even when he isn't present with the particular ailment. Being able to heal someone is something that we struggle to even begin to wrap our minds around in the first place. But here we see Jesus taking this power that he has to another level. Level. He's able to heal the servant even though he's not in the room with them. Jesus is more than just someone who can heal people. He has a power and an authority at a completely different level. And then finally, we see another miracle of Jesus where he raises the widow's son. Once again, the power and authority of Jesus is amplified. It's brought to the next level. It's one thing to speak with authority. It's another to be able to heal even when you aren't in the room with the one that you're healing. The authority of Jesus is taken to the ultimate level when he displays that he not only has power over sickness and disease, but he also has authority over death. And it isn't just us, the readers, that take note of this truth. Luke informs us that the people in the surrounding country are taking note of who Jesus is, and they are very aware of what it means that he's able to perform these different miracles. And so we start out looking at verses 1 through 5 here in Luke 7. And it's a, as I said before, it's a very good opportunity to be reminded of, of where we've been so far in Luke. Before we went back to finish up Genesis, we navigated our way through the first six chapters of Luke, and we saw the miraculous birth of Jesus. We saw his ability to heal. We also saw some of his teaching. And Luke wants us to understand who Jesus is and what this truth means for us. Now, before we heard a word of teaching of Jesus, we were sure to understand his divine origin in his birth. After we have all of that established, we see the way in which his understanding of Scripture was respected, even, in, even at a young age when Luke told us about when he stayed back, when J Jesus stayed back in Jerusalem, when his family had gone for the feast of Passover. And we also saw that John the Baptist prepared the way for him. And we also saw the temptation in the wilderness. And what we saw there was that unlike Israel and the wilderness, who failed in all their temptations, Jesus succeeded. And the idea that Luke wants us to understand is that Jesus is the one. And this is all before we even got to miracles and and very much teaching. You get the idea and, and you feel it in the text here that Jesus is the real deal. He's the one. The one that we have been waiting for through all of Scripture. And throughout this story that Luke is unfolding for us, we have seen the continuing increase in the popularity of Jesus. And Luke finished up a section of different teachings from Jesus in chapter 6. He's established that Jesus has authority over disease and other human ailments. And then we came to Jesus giving that sermon on the plain that we looked at where he bestowed covenant blessings and covenant curses. And he taught on loving your enemies, 
among other important foundational teachings that Jesus had. And so we read here at the beginning of chapter 7 that Jesus has entered Capernaum. And right away we get the idea that Luke wants us to understand the continued expansion of the popularity of Jesus. And we see this on display for us in who we are told sends people to Jesus. It's a centurion. Now this is a commander of Roman soldiers. Now this type of commander would probably have a reputation for being a pretty tough and rough character. But here we read of what a good man he is. And this comes through as Luke introduces us to him. It's important that as we approach the story that I remind you to think back to who Luke is writing this gospel to. At the opening of the book, we read that it was addressed to Theophilus. Now, he would have been a Gentile. And so Luke is giving us glimpses into the fact that Jesus came not only for the Hebrew people who had been set apart as the children of God, but in several ways we've already seen Luke foreshadowing the good news of Jesus going to the outsiders who are the Gentiles. We saw this back with the way Luke wrote his genealogy. Luke wrote his genealogy working backwards when we looked at it at the beginning of Luke. Remember, he worked backwards all the way to Adam. He connected Jesus not only to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob for the sake of the covenant promise, he takes it all the way back to the garden and to the fact that we are all in need of salvation because all of us, every one of us is fallen in Adam. And so Luke gives us this story about an unclean, outsider Gentile coming to Jesus with this desire for his servant to be healed. And right off the bat, we're given this idea of him being a good Roman centurion because he highly values a servant. He doesn't see his servants as being disposable or doesn't think that it doesn't matter that this servant is ill or on the verge of death. He wants to care for them. He, he wants to see them healed. And we see that the popularity of Jesus is not just significant with the Hebrew folk. Even a Roman, a Gentile, desires to have Jesus heal a servant because the Word has got out that He can do this. And we see that this centurion is unique in that Jews speak well of Him. Now remember that generally speaking, the Hebrews did not like the Romans being in their land. They were not only unclean based upon their religious systems, they were not only outsiders, the Romans were an occupying force. And this centurion, as a soldier, would have definitely been viewed as an occupying force. Their feelings towards them were that this is our land. This is the land that God has ordained, all the way back to our father Abraham, that we would have. Why are you here? We don't like you Romans being here. But here we see the elders of the Jews obviously like this guy because they go to try and convince Jesus to heal this servant. And they say something interesting too as we, as we stop and consider the words that they use. They tell Jesus that the centurion is worthy of him, of Jesus, doing this. These Jewish men think the centurion deserves to have his servant healed because the centurion's a nice guy and he loves their nation. And in fact, he helped them out by building their local synagogue. He's a great guy, Jesus. He deserves to have you heal his servant. Now, I don't know about you, but 
I find this statement to be a rather interesting one. They think that the servant needs to be healed because his master was favorable enough to their people to be nice to them, to build them a synagogue. There's a sense here from the Jewish elders that favor from Jesus is somehow merited, right? But we see that the one who actually desires the healing for his servant doesn't feel the same way as we move on to verses 6 and 10. And as we move on to the second point, we see the authority that Jesus has over this sickness. And we find as we get to verse 6, Jesus has agreed to go along with them. And then they get in the neighborhood, and we find out that the centurion wants to stop Jesus from coming. He's asked for this healing, but he's trying to stop Jesus from coming all the way. Now, this is interesting. He wants his servant healed. But at the same time, he doesn't feel it is necessary that Jesus comes all the way to his house. But we find that he has a legitimate reason for saying this. The Jewish elders had insisted that the centurion was worthy of Jesus helping him. But this Gentile, this outsider, this Roman soldier, doesn't believe that he is worthy of Jesus coming under his roof. We see that he understands what it means to have authority. He is a man with authority. And if he tells soldiers to go somewhere, they go. Why? Because he has been given that authority by the Roman government And if the soldiers don't respect his authority and act on his commands, things will not end well for those soldiers. This centurion extends this idea of authority that Jesus has over sickness and disease. If Jesus really has the authority to heal and authority over what ails his servant, then it won't matter where Jesus is. If Jesus commands it, it will be done, period, This centurion understands the authority that Jesus has. What what faith this unclean, Gentile outsider has. If Jesus has authority over this sickness, the proximity of his body to the disease doesn't mean anything. And Jesus acknowledges this faith of the centurion. Notice what he says here in verse 9. I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And notice the turn that has happened here in the text. The Jewish elders have come telling Jesus that this man is worthy to have his servant healed because he's a good guy and has done stuff for them. And Jesus acknowledges the unique faith that this centurion has. In fact, there isn't even anyone in Israel who has this much faith. Again, think back to what Luke is telling us about Gentiles being able to come to Christ. Not just are they able to show up to the party, but this Roman exhibits greater faith than any of the Hebrew folk. And notice that it isn't about what he has done. It's about his faith. It's about him denying his own worthiness and instead trusting in the power and the authority that Jesus has. And while Luke assuredly wants us to know that Jesus has the ability to heal absent from the location of the ailment, the greater message here is the continued idea of Jesus having authority. And even the Gentiles get this. That's the message. That is the story that Luke is telling us. And with the next story in our passage today, we 
we see Luke continuing to tell us the story of Jesus in, in such a way that we see his authority and we see that Luke has the end goal that we will put our faith and our trust in this unique one who has been sent by God. And so as we move on to this last part of our text for today, we see that Jesus is once again on the move. Luke is once again giving us this idea that the popularity and influence of Jesus is expanding. It's spreading everywhere. And here we see that they're off to a town called Nain, and it isn't just his disciples that are moving about with him here. We read that there's a great crowd with him, and as they get near to the town's gate, they find a sad scene, a very sad scene. A man had died, and we find out that this is especially sad because he's the only son his mother has. And this is more than just an emotional event here. This isn't just an emotional thing that we're talking about as we look at this, because we're told that she's also a widow. Now, you don't need a Ph.D. level education in the Bible to understand what we're meant to feel here, do you? You get this. It was her only son, and she's a widow. We know what the issue is here. This is it's pretty plain. Her husband, who was her primary means of support, has died. And now her son, who would have been taking care of her, has died as well. It isn't just that, that we understand the level of grief here of someone emotionally losing someone. This is a tragedy not just because it's sad, but because another life has ended and the level of support for this wife, for this mother, is gone. Her life is in danger ultimately. She doesn't have somebody to care for her. And so we see that Jesus has compassion on this woman. And really, it's a beautiful picture that we have here. Jesus and the people following Him come upon this sad scene, and, and Jesus is aware of the situation. We don't know that he, if He has divine knowledge of this or if He asks someone the situation of this grieving party, but we know that Jesus has compassion. And in the midst of this, He tells this woman, not to weep. Now you have to wonder, what's the response to what Jesus has to say? There there could have been a range of reactions to this statement by Jesus. Everything from, who is this guy to tell me not to weep? I've lost my husband. I've lost my son. Who are you and why do you think that you know how I should feel? And you also have to wonder, what thoughts the disciples and the crowd might have had? Okay, Jesus, uh, we've seen you heal sicknesses and, and such. But giving this grieving mother hope here is a bit much. But we find that just as always, Jesus comes through, doesn't He? He touches what they are carrying the body of the young man on to stop this procession. And then He speaks. He doesn't heal by touching. He speaks. He says, young man, I say to you, arise. Jesus says the word, and the dead man sits up. He rises and he speaks. He has been resurrected, and Jesus gives him to his mother. And we see that the crowd has precisely the correct reaction, don't they? They are seized with fear. Imagine if you saw this happen. You would be afraid as well. 
Who is this man who can wake the dead? And we see that the man is absolutely and most assuredly dead by the reaction that the crowd has, right? This wasn't that he had been weak and now he has enough strength to sit up and and they just thought he was dead. These people knew what death looked like. They lived with death in a way that you and I can't even imagine. People died at younger ages from all sorts of maladies. There weren't nursing homes or hospice houses where they could isolate themselves from the death that was happening around them. These folks knew death. And they knew this guy was dead. And they'd probably recently, very recently, been to another funeral procession where they took the body outside the city in one of these possessions and they left it there. And that person didn't come back. But this guy is resurrected. This guy is revived. They are right to be seized by fear. Who is this Jesus who has authority not only over sickness, but over death itself? But notice that their fear is quickly directed toward a proper response. We read here that they, that they praise God. They understand that there's no other way in which someone could come back to life. This young man did not do this on his own. It took Jesus and the power of God for this to happen. There is no question what the source of this miraculous occurrence is. And so what do they do? They bring praise to God. But they not only praise God, but they also understand the significance of what they've seen. They identify Jesus as a great prophet who has arisen among them. And they understand that God is visiting His people. God has come to them, and they understand this by seeing what Jesus has done. And you've heard me say this many times before that the point of the miracles that Jesus does is to get this response and this understanding from the people. Miracles don't occur in the Bible just for fun or arbitrary reasons. The miracles we see in the Bible are conveying a message to us that God is speaking. The false prophets can't do miracles, and so they don't speak the true word from God. A true prophet does miracles. And so when He speaks, it's God speaking through Him. And you are to listen. That's what's being conveyed to us here as we see that Jesus has authority. And we see that He has the ultimate authority because He even has authority over death. Something that absolutely only God Himself can do. And as the passage closes up, We see something that we've heard in Luke previously. The report of Jesus spreads, and well it should. Jesus is a prophet just as we have read. He is a messenger from God. As we continue to learn about who He is and what He has done, Luke is telling us this so that we will listen to Jesus. And it's with this idea in mind that I want us to glean our application for this week. We have seen here in Luke that Jesus has authority. He has authority over sickness and death. And so if He has authority over those things, He speaks the Word of the Lord. And we do well then to make sure that we understand the place of authority that Jesus is to have 
in our lives. While the story of the resurrection is many chapters away from us in Luke's Gospel, you and I know the story. And that truth of His death and resurrection is a reminder for us of the love that God has for us and for the fact that Jesus is Lord even over death. He is to be the one who guides us. We are to listen to Jesus. So do we acknowledge the place of authority that Jesus has in our lives? Because He has saved us and made us His own, He is Lord. But do we put Him in the primary place in our lives? That's hard because we like being the ones who have authority. We like being in charge. We like the autonomy of being Lord over our lives. We like the authority of deciding what is right and what is wrong for ourselves. But as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, He is Lord. And He deserves the place of authority and of honor in our lives because of the saving work that He has bestowed on us. And so as we remember this passage and as we step out into the world this week, may we continually consider it. And may we assess our lives and ask, who sits on the seat of authority of our lives? Is it us and our desires? Or are we subjecting ourselves to the One who truly has authority? The One who has ascended and is Lord and King of all of heaven and earth. Is He King and Lord of our lives? Are we desiring to be His loyal servants? Or are we rebelling against His authority? The authority that He has. Are we trying to usurp it away from Him? Is Jesus Lord in our lives? So may we humbly assess ourselves And may we put ourselves under Christ's authority, for He alone is Lord. May we listen to His Word and hear and believe this good news. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Edgerton First Reformed. For more information on First Reformed, navigate to our website, edgertonfrc.org, or our Facebook page.